Chapter Twelve of This Crowded Earth by Robert Bloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. This Crowded Earth by Robert Bloch. Chapter Twelve. Little John, Twenty Sixty Five. The helicopter landed on the roof, and the attendants wheeled it over to one side. They propped the ladder up, and Little John descended slowly, panting. They had a coaster chair waiting, and he sank into it, grateful for the rest. Hardy fellows, these attendants, but then they were almost three feet tall. More stamina, that was the secret. Common stock, of course, but they served a purpose. Somebody had to carry out the orders. When they wheeled the coaster chair into the elevator, Little John descended. The elevator halted on the first floor, and he breathed a sigh of relief. Great heights always made him faint and dizzy, and even a short helicopter trip took its toll. The mere thought of soaring two hundred feet above the ground was enough to paralyze him. But this journey was vital. Thurman was waiting for him. Yes, Thurman was waiting for him here in the council chamber. The coaster chair rolled forward into the room, and again Little John felt a twinge of apprehension. The room was vast, too big for comfort. It must be all of fifty feet long and over ten feet in height. How could Thurman stand it, working here? But he had to endure it. Little John reminded himself he was head of the council. Thurman was lying on the couch when Little John rolled in, but he sat up and smiled. I greet you, he said. I greet you, Little John answered. No, don't bother to stay seated. Surely we don't need to be ceremonious. Thurman pricked up his ears at the sound of the unfamiliar word. He wasn't the scholarly type like Little John, but he appreciated Little John's learning and knew he was important to the council. They needed scholars these days, and antiquarians, too. One has to look to the past when rebuilding a world. You sent for me? Little John asked. The question was purely rhetorical, but he wanted to break the silence. Thurman looked troubled as he replied. Yes, it's a matter of confidence between us. So be it. You may speak in trust. Thurman eyed the door. Come nearer, he said. Little John pressed a lever and rolled up to the couch side. Thurman's eyes peered at him through the thick contact lenses. Little John noted the deep wrinkles around his mouth, but without surprise, after all, Thurman was an old man. He must be over thirty. I've been thinking, Thurman said abruptly. We have failed. Failed? Thurman nodded. Need I explain? You have been close to the Council for many years. You have seen what we've attempted ever since the close of the Naturalist Wars. A magnificent effort, Little John answered politely. In less than thirty years an entire new world has risen from the ruins of the old. Civilization has been restored, snatched from the very brink of a barbarism that threatened to engulf us. Nonsense, Thurman muttered. What? Sheer nonsense, Little John. You're talking like a pedant. But I am a pedant, Little John nodded, and it's true, when the naturalists were exterminated, this nation and other nations were literally destroyed. Worse than physical destruction was the threat of mental and moral collapse. But the yardstick councils arose to take over. The concept of small government came into being and saved us. We began to rebuild on a sensible scale with local limited control. The little community arose. Spare me the history lesson, said Thurman dryly. We rebuilt, yes, we survived. In a sense, perhaps, we even made certain advances. There is no longer any economic rivalry, no social distinctions, no external pressures. I think I can safely assume that the danger of future warfare is forever banished. 
The balance of power is no longer a factor. The balance of nature has been partially restored. And only one problem remains to plague mankind. What is that? We face extinction, Thurman said. But that's not true, Little John interrupted. Look at history and— Look at us, Thurman sighed. You needn't bother with history. The answer is written in our faces, in our bodies. I've searched the past very little compared to your scholarship, but enough to know that things were different in the old days. The naturalists, whatever else they might have been, were strong men. They walked freely in the land. They lived lustily and long. Do you know what our average life expectancy is today, little John? A shade under forty years. And that only if one is fortunate enough to lead a sheltered existence as we do. In the mines, in the fields, in the radioactive areas, they die before the age of thirty. Little John leaned forward. Schuler touches on just that point in his Psychology of Time, he said eagerly. He posits the relationship between size and duration. Time is relative, you know. Our lives, short as they may be in terms of comparative chronology, nevertheless have a subjective span equal to that of the naturalists in their heyday. Nonsense, Thurman said again. Did you think that's what concerns me? Whether or not we feel that our lives are long or short? What then? I'm talking about the basic elements essential to survival. I'm talking about strength, stamina, endurance, the ability to function. That's what we're losing, along with the normal span of years. The world is soft and flabby. Yardstick children tell us they were healthy at first, but their children are weaker, and their grandchildren weaker still. The effect of the wars, the ravages of radiation and malnutrition have taken a terrible toll. The world is soft and flabby today. People can't walk anymore, let alone run. We find it difficult to lift and bend and work. But we won't have to worry about such matters for long, Little John hazarded. Think of what's been done in robotics. Those recent experiments seem to prove— I know, Thurman nodded. We can create robots, no doubt. We have a limited amount of raw materials to allocate to the project, and if we can perfect automatons, they'll function quite adequately. Virtually indestructible, too, I understand. I imagine they'll still be able to operate efficiently a hundred or more years from now if only they learn to oil and repair one another, because by that time the human race will be gone. Come now, it isn't that serious. Oh, but it is. Thurman raised himself again with an effort. Your study of history should have taught you one thing, if nothing else. The tempo is quickening. While it took mankind thousands of years to move from the bow and arrow to the rifle, it took only a few hundred to move from the rifle to the thermonuclear weapon. It took ages before men mastered flight, and then in two generations they developed satellites. In three, they reached the moon and Mars. But we're talking about physical development. I know. And physically the human race altered just as drastically in an equally short span of time. As recently as the nineteenth century, the incidence of disease was a thousandfold greater than it is now. Life was short then. In the twentieth century, disease lessened and life expectancy doubled in certain areas. Height and weight increased perceptibly with every passing decade. Then came Leffingwell and his injections. Height, weight, life expectancy have fallen perceptibly every decade since then. The war merely hastened the process. You appear to have devoted a great deal of time to this question, Little John observed. I have, answered the older man, and it's not a question, it's a fact. The one fact that confronts us all, if we proceed along our present path, we face certain extinction in a very short time. The strain is weakening constantly, the vitality is draining away. We sought to defeat nature, but the naturalists were right in their way. 
And the solution? Thurman was silent for a long moment. Then, I have none, he said. You have consulted the medical authorities? Naturally. And experiments have been made. Physical conditioning systems of exercise, experimentation in chemotherapy are still being undertaken. There's no lack of volunteers, but a great lack of results. No, the answer does not lie in that direction. But what else is there? That is what I had hoped you might tell me, Thurman said. You are a scholar. You know the past. You speak often of the lessons of history. Little John was nodding, but not in agreement. He was trying to comprehend. For suddenly the conviction came to him clearly. Thurman was right. It was happening, and happened right under their smug noses. The world was weakening. It was slowing down. And the race is only to the swift. He cursed himself for his habit of thinking in platitudes and quotations, but long years of study had unfitted him for less prosaic phraseology. If he could only be practical. Practical. Thurman, he said, there is a way, a way so obvious we've all overlooked it, passed right over it. And that is? Stop the Leffingwell injections. But— I know what you'll say. There have been genetic mutations, very true, but such mutations can't be universal. A certain percentage of offspring will be sound, capable of attaining full growth. And we don't have the population problem to cope with any more. There's room for people again. So why not try it? Stop the injections and allow babies to be born as they were before. Little John hesitated before adding a final word, but he knew he had to add it. He knew it now. Normally, he said. Thurman nodded. So that is your answer? Yes, I, I think it will work. So do the biologists, Thurman told him. A generation of normal infants reared to maturity would restore mankind to its former stature in every sense of the word. And now, knowing the lessons of the past, we could prepare for the change to come. We could rebuild the world for them to live in, rebuild it psychically as well as physically. We'd plan to eliminate the rivalry between the large and the small, the strong and the weak. It wouldn't be difficult, because there's plenty for all. There'd be no trouble, as there was in the old days. We've learned to be psychologically flexible." Little John smiled. "'Then that is the solution?' he asked. "'Yes. Eliminating the Leffingwell injections will give us a good proportion of normal children again. But where do we find the normal women to bear them?' "'Normal women?' Thurman sighed, then reached over and placed a scroll in the scanner. I have already gone into that question with research technicians, he said, and I have the figures here. He switched on the scanner and began to read. The average nubile female aged 13 to 21 is 2 feet 10 inches high and weighs 48 pounds. Thurman flicked the switch again and peered up. I don't think I'll bother with pelvic measurements, he said. You can already see that giving birth to a 6 or 7 pound infant is physically impossible under the circumstances. It cannot be done. But surely there must be some larger females, perhaps a system of selective breeding on a gradual basis. You're talking in terms of generations. We haven't got that much time. Thurman shook his head. No, we're stopped right here. We can't get normal babies without normal women, and the only normal women are those who began life as normal babies. Which comes first, little John murmured, the chicken or the egg? What's that? Nothing. Just an old saying from history. Thurman frowned. Apparently, then, that's all you can offer in your professional capacity as a historian, just some old sayings. He sighed. Too bad you don't know some old prayers, because we need them now. He bowed his head, signifying the end of the interview. 
Littlejohn rolled out of the room. His copter took him back to his own dwelling back across the rooftops of New Chicagee. Ordinarily Littlejohn avoided looking down. He dreaded heights, and the immensity of the city itself was somehow appalling. But now he gazed upon the capital and center of civilization with a certain morbid affection. New Chicago had risen on the ashes of the old after the war's end. Use of thermonukes had been limited, fortunately, so radioactivity did not linger and the vast craters hollowed out by ordinary warheads had been partially filled in by rubble and debris. Artificial fill had done the rest of the job, so that now New Chicago was merely a flat prairie as it must have been hundreds of years ago, a flat prairie on which the city had been resurrected. There were almost fifty thousand people here in the capital, the largest congregation of population on the entire continent. They had built well and surely this time, built for the security and certainty of centuries to come. Little John sighed. It was hard to accept the fact that they had been wrong, that all this would end in nothingness. They had eliminated war, eliminated disease, eliminated famine, eliminated social inequality, injustice, disorders external and internal, and in so doing, they had eliminated themselves. The sun was setting in the west, and long shadows crept over the city below. Yes, the sun was setting, and the shadows were gathering. The night was coming to claim its own. Darkness was falling, eternal darkness. It was quite dark by the time Little John's copter landed on the rooftop of his own dwelling. So dark, in fact, that for a moment he didn't see the strange vehicle already standing there. Not until he had settled into his coaster chair did he notice the presence of the other copter, and then it was too late. Too late to do anything except sit and stare as the gigantic shadow loomed out of the night silhouetted against the sky. The shadow shambled forward, and Little John gaped, gaped in terror at the titanic figure. He opened his mouth to speak, but words did not form. There were no words to form, for how does one address an apparition? Instead, it was the apparition which spoke. I have been waiting for you," it said. Y yes I want to talk to you. The voice was deep, menacing. Little John shifted in his coaster chair. There was nowhere to go, no escape. He gazed up at the shadow. Finally he summoned a response. Shall we go inside? he asked. The figure shook its head. Where? Down into that dollhouse of yours? It isn't big enough. I've already been there. What I have to say can be said right here. Who, who are you? The figure stepped forward so that its face was illuminated by the fluorescence streaming in the open door which led to the inclined chairway descending to Little John's dwelling. Little John could see the face now, the gigantic, wrinkled face, scarred and seared and seamed. It was a human face, but utterly alien to the humanity Little John knew. Faces such as this one had disappeared from the earth a lifetime ago. At least, history had taught him that. History had not prepared him for the actual living presence of a naturalist, little John gasped. You're a naturalist. Yes, that's what you are. The apparition scowled. I am not a naturalist. I am a man. But you can't be. The, the war. I am very old. I lived through your war. I have lived through your peace. Soon I shall die. But before I do, there is something else which must be done. You've come here to kill me? Perhaps. The looming figure moved closer and stared down. No, don't try to summon help. When your servants saw me, they fled. You're alone now, little John. You know my name? Yes, I know your name. I know the names of everyone on the council. Each of them has a visitor tonight. Then it's a plot. 
A conspiracy? We have planned this very carefully through the long years. It's all we lived for, those few of us who survived the war. But the Council wasn't responsible for the war. Uh, most of us weren't even alive then. Believe me, we weren't to blame. I know. The gigantic face creased in a senile simulation of a smile. Nobody was ever to blame for anything. Nobody was ever responsible. That's what they always told me. I mustn't hate mankind for multiplying, even though population created pressure, and pressure created panic, and that drove me mad. I mustn't blame Leffingwell for solving the overpopulation problem, even though he used me as a guinea pig in his experiments. I mustn't blame the yardsticks for penning me up in a prison until revolution broke out. And I mustn't blame the naturalists for bombing the place where I took refuge. So whose fault was it that I've gone through eighty years of a sordid hell? Why did I, Harry Collins, get singled out for a lifetime of misery and misfortune? The huge old man bent over little John's huddled form. Maybe it was all a means to an end, a way of bringing me here, at this moment, to do what must be done. Don't, don't harm me. You're, you're not well. You're crazy? The old man shook his head. No, I'm not crazy. Not now. But I have been at times during my life. Perhaps we all are when we attempt to face up to the complications of an average existence. Try to confront the problems which are too big for a single consciousness to cope with in a single lifespan. I've been crazy in the city, and crazy in the isolation of a cell, and crazy in the welter of war. And perhaps the worst time of all was when I lost my son. Yes, I had a son, little John. He was one of the first, one of Leffingwell's original mutations, and I never knew him very well until the revolution came and we went away together. He was a doctor, my boy, and a good one. We spent almost five years together, and I learned a lot from him, about medicine. But that wasn't important then. I'm thinking of what I learned about love. I'd always hated yardsticks, but my son was one, and I came to love him. He had plans for rebuilding the world, he and I and the rest of us. We were going to wait until the revolution ended and then help restore sanity and civilization. But the naturalists flew over and dropped their bomb, and my boy died. Over four hundred of our group died there in the canyon, four hundred who might have changed the fate of the world. Do you think I can forget that? Do you think I and the few others who survived have ever forgotten? Can you blame us if we did go crazy, if we hid away out there in the western wilderness, hid away from a world that had offered us nothing but death and destruction, and plotted to bring death and destruction to that world in return? Think about it for a moment, little John. We were old men, all of us, and the world had given us only its misery to bear during our lifetimes. The world we wanted to save was destroying itself. Why should we be concerned with its fate or future? So we changed our plans, little John. Perhaps the shock had been too much. Instead of plotting to rebuild the world, we turned our thoughts to completing its destruction. Our tools and texts were gone, buried in the rubble with the bodies of fine young men. But we had our minds, crazed minds, you'd call them, but aware of reality, the grim reality of the post-revolutionary years. We burrowed away in the desert. We schemed and we dreamed. From time to time we sent out spies. We knew what was going on. We knew the naturalists were gone, that six-footers had vanished from a yardstick world. We knew about the rehabilitation projects. We watched your people gradually evolve new patterns of living and learning. Some of the former knowledge was rescued, but not all. Our little group had far more learning than you've ever dreamt of. Fifty of us between ourselves could have surpassed all your scientists in every field. But we watched and we waited, 
and some of us died of privation, and some of us died of old age, until at last there were only a dozen of us to share the dream, the dream of destruction. And we knew that we must act swiftly, or not at all. So we came into the world, cautiously and carefully, moving unobtrusively and unobserved. We wanted to contemplate the corruption, seek out the weaknesses in your degenerate civilization, and we found them, immediately. Those weaknesses are everywhere apparent, for they are physical. You're one of a dying race, little John. Mankind's days are numbered. There's no need for grandiose schemes of reactivating warheads in buried missile centers, of loosing thermonukes upon the world. Merely by killing off the Central Council here in New Chicago, we can accomplish our objective. A dozen men die, and there's not enough initiative left to replace them. It's as simple as that, and as complicated. Harry Collins nodded. Yes as complicated, because the only weaknesses we've observed are physical ones. We've seen enough of the ways of this new civilization to realize that. All of the things I hated during my lifetime have disappeared now. The crowding, the competition, the sordid self-interest, the bigotry, intolerance, prejudice, the antisocial aspects of society are gone. There is only the human race, living much closer to the concept of utopia than I ever dreamed possible. You and the other survivors have done well, little John. And yet you come to kill us? We came for that purpose because we still retained the flaws and failings of our former cultures. We looked for targets to blame, for villains to hate and destroy. Instead, we found this reality. No, I'm not crazy, little John, and I and my fellows aren't here to execute revenge. We have returned to the original plan, the plan Leffingwell had, and my son and all the others who worked in their own way for the dream of a better world. We come now to help you help you before you die, before we die. Little John looked up and sighed. Why couldn't this have happened before, he murmured. It's too late now. But it isn't too late. My friends are here. They are telling your fellow council members the same thing right now. We may be old, but we can still impart what we have learned. There are any number of technological developments to be made. We can help you to increase your use of atomic power. There's soil reclamation and irrigation projects and biological techniques. You said it yourself, Little John whispered, we're a dying race. That's the primary problem, and it's an insoluble one. Just this afternoon, and he told him about the interview with Thurman. Don't you understand, Little John concluded, we have no solution for survival. We're paying the price now because for a while we wouldn't heed history. We tried to defeat nature, and in the end, nature has defeated us. Because we would not render unto Caesar the things which are... Harry Collins smiled. That's it, he said. What? Caesar. That's the answer. Your own medical men must have records. I know because I learned medicine from my son. There used to be an operation in the old days called a caesarean section, used on normal women and on dwarfs and midgets, too, in childbirth. If your problem is how to deliver normal children safely, a technique can be revived. Get hold of some of your people. Let's see what data they have on this. I'll be glad to furnish instruction. There was excitement after that. Too much excitement for little John. By the time the Council had assembled an emergency session, by the time plans were formulated and he returned to his own dwelling in the helicopter, he was completely exhausted. Only the edge of elation sustained him, the realization that a solution had been found. As he sank into slumber, he knew that he would sleep the clock around. And so would Harry Collins. The old man and his companions, now guests of the Council, had been temporarily quartered in the Council chambers. It was the only structure large enough to house them, and even so they had to sleep on the floor. But it was sufficient comfort for the moment. It was many hours before Harry Collins awoke. 
His waking was automatic, for the tiny telescreen at the end of the council room glowed suddenly, and the traditional voice chirped forth to interrupt his slumber. "'Good morning,' said the voice. "'It's a beautiful day in New Chicago.' Harry stared at the screen, and then he smiled. "'Yes,' he murmured. "'But tomorrow will be better.'" End of This Crowded Earth by Robert Block